Peter, uh, there is a shift that takes place right here, and we move from his conversation about how we interact on godly living to looking at a world that is hostile or that will engage or is, is when I say is sinful and that, that, that is filled with suffering. And so this morning we're looking at engaging with a hostile world. Uh, in the world of sports and athletics and even beyond that, uh, there seems to always be a home field advantage and sometimes it can make a very significant difference. Uh, for instance, in football, uh, there are specific stadiums where it is extremely difficult to be the visiting team, uh, making it a hostile environment by design. I was doing a little bit of Google searching, so it has to be true then. Um, <laughs> and I looked up the number two and the number one worst stadiums to play in. Uh, Lumen Stadium, which is home to the Seattle Seahawks, has a fan base that they say is dedicated to disrupting the opposing team with their screaming and volume. Uh, the I was reading, and again, I'm, I'm taking all this from Google. So uh, the, they say the architecture of the, of the stadium was designed that when they screamed, it would bounce off a certain surface and be directed onto the field. And so if you know Washington State, they said, with that noise and the constant rain that you're about to always encounter when there, it becomes a very hostile place to play as the visiting team. Now, they were number two on the list. Number one was Arrowhead Stadium, which is home to the Kansas City Chiefs. And it's the number one difficult stadium to play in, the most hostile environment. Uh, fans that have truly earned that right, they set a record in 2014 for loudest screaming fans. And that's not just their cheering. This is disrupting the team as it plays. They reached a decibel level of 142.2. I want to give you some parameters Normal conversation is 60 decibels. That's when you're talking to a normal person. If you're talking to me, it's probably in the 80, 90 decibel range uh, on a normal thing. Noise above 120 decibels can potentially cause immediate damage to your ears. And these fans were at 142.2, which, by the way, is louder than a jet engine taking off, medically described as painful and dangerous. You can gather that these are hostile environments to play in, presenting a hurdle for the visiting team, something that they had to be aware of and be prepared for. Well, here's my connection to the idea of being hostile. Uh, we are not playing at home. This is not our home. We represent the opposing team in a world controlled by Satan, so to speak, a world that is influenced by sin and that we battle uh, the opposite of its system and goals. And the environment is hostile, hostile in varying degrees. And we understand that. Uh, we live in a country that we may complain a lot about it, uh, has a lot of freedoms still vested in it, religious freedoms. If you read, and I encourage you to read about your brothers and sisters around the world, you recognize that hostility increases, the physical persecution increases. But here's a reality we all know. This world is hostile by definition, a condition that is true today, and it was true back in Peter's time. And so Peter is transitioning his letter to look at how we're supposed to engage with this hostile environment. As MacArthur notes, this passage speaks to all who would live godly lives in the midst of a hostile, ungodly culture. So he's not just passing off the godly lives thing, and you're going to see that woven through his whole instruction 
on being ready to engage this culture, but instead is now building and saying, hey, there's going to be hostility, there's going to be persecution, there's going to be suffering. And as you, we journey through the rest of the letter, we're going to see suffering come in and how we deal with it. But the fact of the matter is, we will be confronted with an anti-Christian society of some sort and need to understand how to engage with that hostile world. The original audience for Peter's letter were already encountering some of that pressure uh, for sure. They were facing some suffering. We talked about that in the introduction many weeks ago, that they are already feeling some of the Nero persecution. They're already starting to sense this anti-Christian sentiment coming out. And so Peter instructs them on how to deal with it, stating that they should first, and this is what's interesting, be good. Verse 13 and who is he that will harm you if you be followers of that which is good? Now, the weight of that statement in Greek, be followers, because we sometimes lose the weight of a word when it's translated, it actually means to be zealous for good. And that idea of being zealous is linked to someone who was a known fanatic or a zealot. And Peter would be well vested in that. If you read through the list of the apostles, there was one called Simon the zealot. And you might say, okay, zealot for what? And it was actually linking him to a political party. There was a group of Jews at that time, or maybe 30 years prior, who were passionate about being free from any foreign reign. And the reason they were called zealots is because they wanted to be free from any foreign reign by any means necessary. So they were a group of people that were willing to murder they were willing to break the law. They were willing to break God's law to be free. So in other words, their whole emphasis was freedom from foreign reign, whatever way we can accomplish that. And sometimes it's interesting to remember that in the group of apostles, you have a zealot, someone who is already willing to assassinate and how God changed and shaped and formed different people. But Peter would have understand this idea of being a zealot. So when he comes in and says, be followers, what he's saying in Greek is be a zealot for what's good. Now, good is not just the good as the world defines it. We understand that the good is defined by Christ, a life characterized by generosity, unselfishness, kindness, thoughtfulness towards others. It's going to be someone who is zeroed in on God's good on what God would say is good or God's standard of good. So in other words, someone who is going to be zeroed in on living a life that replicates what Christ looked like. And so Peter commands being good, a life that looks like our Savior's life, because when you're going to deal with a hostile world, there is a starting point. And sometimes we think the starting point is slinging the sword, or we're going right into battle, or we're going to be having a ready answer. And but what I hope we can gather is as Peter transitions from godly living as a general principle or characteristic into how we live our life in the world that we're in and understanding their suffering, he actually starts by reminding us that we need to have godly lives. That if you are going to defend the faith, and I hope this point comes clear to all of us, you must first be good as believers, we are called to be intentionally and intensively focused on being good, understanding the right definition of being good. When a believer is passionate for what is good, they will be a believer that lives a godly life. Again, link back to what we just walked through from government to employee to marriage and family to interacting in the church. 
godly lives. And now Peter says, and if you're going to defend the faith, the foundational point is a godly life. Interesting enough, he he makes a, a generic statement. Typically, a fair human response to good is that they wouldn't harm you. And he's not saying that no one will harm you because we remember that we don't live in a fair or even neutral world. But regardless of how the world responds to us, we as believers are reminded first and foremost in our defense of Christ to be zealous for good, passionate and committed to doing and living out God's purpose. So before we move on into details of engaging a hostile world, so we're on the foundations, now we're going to look at how we engage them in a more direct way. We have to ask ourselves a question are we zealots for God's good? If I dig into my heart and I look at being ready because we, we grab the verse, 1 Peter 3.15, and I'll mention this. This is the apologetic uh, platform. This is how, how we derive the whole discipline of apologetics uh, for the faith. But before we get to that, Peter is saying very boldly that we're to be zealots for God's good. Do we have a passion for goodness? Yet, That passion for doing good is not going to be a guarantee that suffering will not take place. We've read and seen too much of that, right? I mention this all the time, but dive into missionary readings and see suffering. Read about how the church is afflicted around the world, how people live in, in, when I say not truly hostile, but intensively hostile worlds. I read a book, and it's a gentleman that travels around the world. Part of his mission work is to help different missionaries, and he's he's all over the place. And he read a story about a lady has a a successful business. She has coffee shops. These coffee shops are used as connect points for Christians. So they become a place where the church can meet and connect. And she's constantly on the run, so to speak, because the world around her is looking for an opening. Uh, It's a very hostile a Muslim country looking for an opportunity to annihilate her, any indication of that, yet she is persisting and living there. We know that we're going to face suffering and persecution. People that have come to help, and he writes about them, uh, end up getting booted out of the country if they're a foreigner. If they're not a foreigner, they never make it out of the country because when they're caught, they're killed. We know that a passion for good is not going to thwart suffering, because the reality is when we engage in a hostile world, if we look at the second idea of being ready, we are to be good, but now we also must understand that we must be willing. And I'm looking a little bit at 14 as the main verse, but also 17 as a closing comment. Uh, 17 helps us transition again to understanding that suffering is going to be a reality. But he says, but and if ye suffer for righteousness sake, happy are ye, And be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. Then 17 says, For it is better, if the will of God be so, that you suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. Now, I do want us to understand something here. Peter is not making a doomsday statement at all, saying suffering of a certain level will certainly happen, that it must come for us. But he wants us to be aware that it might. The button if is an accurate translation of the Greek, which is saying there is a potential for suffering. And Peter wants to make sure the church knows that. Now, understand the context of who he's writing to. They're already feeling suffering. And so what he's trying to tell them, I'm not saying he's saying you're definitely going to suffer to the extent that everyone else does. You're definitely going to die on a cross 
you're definitely going to have your head taken off. You're definitely going to be whipped. He's not saying that. He's just articulating the fact that there is a real probability that suffering could happen. And he wants them, and he's dealing with their attitude, to be willing to suffer for the cross and for Christ. And I want us to tie in again, and I want to keep making this point. If you're going to be a defender of the gospel, there are steps that have to be taken. And being good is the first one. A godly life is there foundationally. And second is being willing. Are you willing to suffer for the cross? Now, when I say the word suffer, most of us think of being whipped, beaten, imprisoned. But suffering can be, in our context, ridicule, lack of advancement, you name it, it can be as low on the totem pole or hard to distinguish. But the, the premise of what Peter is trying to say is if you're going to defend, if you're going to engage a hostile world, you must be willing because there is a possibility suffering could happen. Persecution because of Christ, persecution against him as his children, his church or his word. Suffering could take place. And are you willing as a believer to face suffering, or are you going to quit when suffering comes? Because if you're going to defend the faith, you must be willing. And that involves maybe a hampering of your career, a hampering of your hobbies, a hampering of your, even in some countries, your education. In China, if you want to have a Christian education, they won't accredit it. And if you don't get accredited, you don't get into a college. And there's parents there saying, we're not going to put you into a system that's going to teach a lie in that sense. They're, they want to grab the kids and control every ounce of their mind. And there's parents who said, well, we're going to, we're going to scrap what may be the educational future of our children because we are willing to suffer for Christ. We are going to stand for something. But here's the fascinating thing. We're just to be willing, but I know how I am sometimes. You're going to face something terrible, uh, and terrible being if I have to go get an MRI or something like that, that's mentally too much for me. Um, and, and I have to just steal myself. I'm supposed to just be ready for it. So I'm cringing, waiting for this horrible thing to get done. Go to the dentist, you name it, right? Those are the things we link to suffering. Uh, but we're not to, as we look at being willing to cringe in anxiety, anticipating the worst. Instead, there is, a, there is a response we're supposed to give. We understand that we are blessed. Happy are ye, it says. And that doesn't mean that a Christian uh, looks at earthly difficult circumstances and relishes them. So many people are almost seeking pain in that sense. You're not a bad Christian for preferring not to be whipped, harassed, humiliated, tortured, or killed. It's not bad because you'd rather not get fired. You'd rather not not face advancement. It doesn't mean we seek suffering, and it's not bad that we'd rather not face suffering, but we're not to cringe because of it. The blessing that he speaks to is found in what is accomplished for God's eternal kingdom in spite of and through that persecution and suffering. When we walk through hardship for Christ's sake, one, the discernment to see that is going to come because we're living godly lives and then we're willing to face suffering. And as we face the suffering, we recognize the blessing is we're being used to advance God's kingdom. We're not looking for a silver lining in a whipping. We're not looking for the silver lining. And we do that as believers all the time. We're like, well, okay, what is God doing good for me right now with this? I got fired. There's a silver lining. There must be a better job out there for me. 
There must be more money. I'm going to trip and fall into a pile of cash. We always are looking for this gift or, or, or pot of gold at the end of the rainbow because we're always centered on ourselves. We're blessed in the suffering because God will use that to advance his kingdom. And we recognize that in that suffering, he is lifted up. We're called to see things eternally. Mary, Jesus' mother, was called blessed among women. But if you remember in Luke, it's her heart that was going to be pierced with many sorrows. Yet she was blessed as she looked at the eternal riches and benefits as she understood how God was using her in a magnificent way to advance his kingdom. It's a right understanding of what it means to be blessed. Matthew 5, 10 through 12 states, Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. (laughs) Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. In other words, As believers, we're not seeking pain on earth. And when it says that we're going to be blessed, we're not seeking for the silver lining that's going to come out from that on earth, though sometimes that does happen. Sometimes suffering is a protection. Sometimes suffering leads to something here on earth that's greater. But that is not our focus. We understand that we're blessed in suffering because God will use that to further his kingdom And so we understand that we are to be balanced, is the word. Be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. As one writer interprets the Greek here, he says, Be not affected with fear by the fear which they strive to inspire in your heart. We're not to get frantic because of pressure and persecution. The world does not get to accomplish what it wants to accomplish. Satan is not allowed to make us frantic. Peter is saying to these believers, a balanced approach. We don't crave suffering. We're not looking for a challenge. I want to be honest with you, and that doesn't make you you or me, and I'm going to speak for myself. I'm not looking for suffering. I don't want to suffer. I'm not looking to get punched in the gut every day because I'm a Christian or kicked or fired or have my house taken away. I'm not seeking that at all. That's the balance. But on the same breath, I'm not supposed to fear it. I'm not to let this world sink its fear into my heart. What happens when you're afraid? You respond differently. And so Peter wants them to be stable. These are believers that will continue stepping forward. You understand that if we're going to be ready to to answer this world, to defend our faith, to respond with the gospel, we can't have fear as a foundational principle. We have to be on stable footing. They want us filled with fear of them, their power, of humanity in general, of the world's priorities. Our calling is not to be twisted and turned by the winds of this world. Fear is why so many believers sadly have responded in the wrong way to our current society. Chasing whatever culture says is important or what people say you have to be passionate about, that's a fear-driven response. And we're called as believers to not have that fear. We're called to be balanced so that we can focus in on what God has called us to focus in on. If you're not willing to suffer for Christ, you will never keep his purpose as your priority. You will not defend the faith because your priority is different. 
Your fear is there. And so we're called as believers to be willing to suffer for the cross. And that willingness will prevent us from being twisted and turned by the winds of the world. We're to remain balanced and steady for Christ. And Peter is going to remind us of being godly again at the close of, the, of this point, verse 17, that it is in line with being willing to suffer. If it is God's will that we suffer, then let it be for elevating his name and purpose and not for something done wrong that carries a justifiable punishment. So he says it's better to suffer for being and living for him than to suffer for something you actually did wrong. Well, I'm a Christian that committed a crime and then I went to prison. Well, that's not suffering for right. That's suffering for wrong that you've done. We are called to be willing to endure persecution and suffering, though not necessarily seeking or wanting it. But I don't want or don't think our struggle is that we seek it out. I think our issue resides in our attitude, our willingness to walk through suffering for a kingdom purpose. We struggle giving God that much control even though he's in control, whether we want to give it to him or not. We demand too many times to know the full extent of his reasons. God, tell me why I'm walking through this. I have to know why I'm suffering. And, and that is not a willingness to suffer. That is presumptuous attitude. I think we wrestle with our attitude of willingness as it links to our control of every situation. Are we willing to have him in control? Are we willing to trust that he has a reason and that his reason will be for the glory of his kingdom and purpose? Do you trust God to use any suffering and all suffering for his glory? And our willingness links directly to our trust. And I put here as a question, are we willing, if called to do so, to walk the road of persecution and suffering for our Lord and Savior. Are you willing, not seek it, but are you willing as a hard attitude to suffer for him? That willingness always will be connected to how much you trust him with your life. Trust him to use your life for his good. The reality of a hostile world means we must be willing to face potential persecution and if called to face it, to, be, to do so as directed in Scripture. You see, Peter is building to us uh, up as believers being prepared, ready to defend the faith. Uh, yet before we're ready to give a verbal defense, because that's what it means to be ready to give a defense, um, we have to realize that we need to do so. We must be committed. And that's verse 15, the first part. Oftentimes when we read 15, we get right to the defense part, right? Be ready to give an, a, a defense. And we miss the first part. It says, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, or but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, or another way of saying it, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. And that's actually the better translation of the Greek there. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. As one writer notes, this means they affirm submission to his control, instruction, and guidance. It is to set apart to give the primary place of adoration, exaltation, and worship to Christ. When you sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, that means you're setting apart Christ as Lord, as primary, as the focus, as the priority. And I put here, we can see there is a distinct priority that is needed. We consecrate ourselves to Christ in an act of devotion. We make Jesus the top priority of our heart. Sanctify Christ as Lord 
in your hearts. And the word that's there for God translating the one actually is a word for the anointed one, speaking of the Messiah. And the word for Lord means kurios, which is Lord, which has a distinctive name of, of God, but also this idea that he is Lord as he is in authority. And as we'll examine in a moment, this verse is going to continue with what I call the classic call to defend the faith, to be ready. But we have to grasp that before readiness comes commitment. Interestingly, even the thought to defend your faith will not come without commitment of your heart. It's not just that you won't be able to defend, you won't even see the need to defend if you're not committed. Too many times we bypass a chance to defend or proclaim the truth of the gospel because that truth is not the first priority of our lives. Because it's not the first thing we think of. You ever said that to yourself? Oh man, I didn't even think about the opportunity. I always go back to one instance, not because there's only been one instance, it's because it's the most distinct instance. It was a friend of mine uh, and we grew up somewhat together, played a lot of soccer together. Lives went different directions. He's getting fake IDs. I'm not. And so there's a lot of things going on there. But he got married and he, he lost a child, actually. And he was sharing with me and he threw out a question. And I remember my answer was, was awful. It, in other words, it wasn't that I was mean or cruel. It just didn't point him to the gospel. And I walked away and I said, why didn't I talk about the faith? Because he asked for a reason. He basically was begging me to tell him, is there hope? And I blew it. And I've thought about that oftentimes. Why did I not link to the gospel? Why didn't I answer the question for hope? That's because, and as I go back over, I didn't have Christ as the first priority. It wasn't the first thing that popped into my mind. Because he's not the top priority. I hate to say it because it makes us all feel a little bit bad, but if you don't think to defend the gospel, it is because you haven't committed in that sense to make Christ the top priority. So before we dive into the be ready part of 15 and 16, we need to ask ourselves, are we sanctifying Christ as Lord of our lives? Is he our number one priority? Does he sit squarely on the throne of your life, sharing that position with no one or nothing else? Is he set apart as the Lord of your heart? And it's leading, I hope you can see, that he moves from godly living, being good, to understand a willingness, a heart attitude, a, a, a disposition that says, I'm willing to suffer for Christ, if so be, to now saying, are you committed? Have you locked in? Is Christ the top priority? And I hope we can see as believers, we struggle to set apart Christ as number one in our lives. If we actually examine our life and our walk through the day and through the week, I think we're all going to find these areas where something else has been chucked into our hearts or put above Christ. And without that commitment, we're not going to be able to see where we need to defend or capable of defending. Because, And this is what's interesting. Because of the call of commitment, it does follow with a command of preparedness, not a suggestion. He says, be committed so that you can actually do what you're supposed to do, and that's to be prepared. We must, and I put the word be ready. 
I'll read the rest of 15 and 16. And be ready always. And if you highlight something, you can underline always. That always catches me because I'm ready sometimes. I don't know if I'm ready always to give an answer to, and then the other word, every man. So anybody, always and to anybody that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience, that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation or behavior is the word there in Christ. Now, as I mentioned, 1 Peter 3.15 is the foundation text for defending the faith. It's the foundation text for the discipline of apologetics. If you want to prove why apologetics should take place, this is the verse, and it is an accurate point of reference. Peter is the launching point of why we defend the faith. It comes from the Greek word apologia, which is translated here defense. So it's, it's directly linked. The connotation of the word points to a reply to an accusation. So the, the root of this word is nestled into the law and into courts. Someone accuses you and you give an answer. Peter has taken the context of that word and he's broadened it. That's why I mentioned always and every. Because you're not in court always, but you are to always be ready to give an answer. And so Peter has taken a very legal definition. You're accused of something and you're defending yourself before the judges or however they're going to decide your case. And then he says, always and every, so that we understand that he's taking what is a legal defense and spreading it out to all of life. And we understand that we're called to correct the misapprehensions and distortions of the faith to answer the world's questions and attacks with the eternal truth from God's revelation. In other words, an answer given God's way. You see, Peter wants us ready to defend the faith, and in doing so, he has a prescribed response. The context of this defense, people wondering, and by the way, he's saying often attacking believers because they see something different in them, because there is something different in them. What are we given a reason for? It's for the what? The hope that is in us. How do people know that there's a hope in us? Because we are different. Because our priorities are not their priorities. Because our focus is not their focus. Because our passion is not their passion. And so they look in, and oftentimes when people see something different, they will attack it. But Peter is trying to tell us that we're not to hide out from this, but instead to engage a hostile world because they're supposed to see something in us. Our answer is about the hope found in Christ. Our answer centers on gospel truth. It centers on the security only found in his salvation. It speaks to the personal relationship we have in Christ and explains in words why and how that has transformed you or us. This is a verbal defense. This is, I know a lot of people say, well, I'm going to live it. I'm not going to say it. I'm not going to, I'm just going to live it. And Peter's actually flipped that and says, living it, I'm assuming you're doing that so that you can verbally now defend it. You can speak about what they see as completely different in your life. Wayne Gruden notes this, Peter must be assuming that the inward hope of Christians results in lives so noticeably different that unbelievers are prompted to ask why they are so distinct. Which again, I think points us back to what he's been saying, the clear critical nature of godly lives, the point Peter made in the previous chapter and verses. Our lives prompt questions, even attacks. 
opening the door of opportunity to share the reason. Because we are called to give the right words in response to questions about the gospel. But that should stop us a minute and make us think. Is my life going to cause someone to ask a question? When they see me, my actions, my way of, and, and look, strip away all this theology idea because we live in the clouds. Let's get at the street level. That's what he's talking about here. He says, as you exercise and work through your business, as you do business dealings, as you perform the work that God's called you to do, whether you're an electrician or an engineer or a teacher or whatever you do, as you interact with the world around you, do they see gospel hope in your life? Are you distinct enough? Do we broadcast the hope that the world cannot explain? And let's be honest, oftentimes we'll hate. And I'm not saying you look around and say, I'm the most obnoxious person in the world and a lot of people hate me, so I must be a good Christian. Bad connect point. The idea is, do I have a hope that resonates out from me to the world around me in such a way that my behavior is unexplainable to them and oftentimes hated by them? Does my life prompt questions about the gospel? And when it does, am I prepared to give a clear answer centered in the gospel? Now, that answer, though it encompasses our personality, must also rise above it. We don't give an answer to prove ourselves or to win the earthly argument. Instead, Peter makes clear there is a prescribed manner. He uses the word meekness, which you could say gentleness. And that's defined as not being dominant or overbearing. As we answer the gospel truth question, and understand this, there's no compromise here. Scripture has no room for compromise of truth, but it's very clear about how we are to engage our world as our Savior did. He was meek and low in heart, never forgetting we're called to be speaking the truth in love, Ephesians 4.15. God has not given us a free reign response, but instead said, I want your response to reflect your Savior. So there's a firm response, a doctrinal response, but it is done in meekness. And then it's also done in fear, or the other word or better word that we understand is reverence, in devotion to God and his truth. And that reverence says something because it tells us that our agenda is wiped out of consideration. I'm quick to respond to people um, Sometimes that is an advantage, and oftentimes that is a disadvantage. My brain is always working through a conversation, but my agenda is not supposed to come out with the attacks of this world. My personality, my wit, my wisdom, my intellect, neither is yours. But instead, it's supposed to represent his agenda. That's when we fear God, when we reverence God. See, we put him in the place that we say, no, I won't, I won't, I won't broadcast myself. I will broadcast him only, his agenda first. Our abilities are set behind the gospel truth. We're not allowed to block the clear view of his truth. And so often, our wittiness and our intellect actually interferes with a clear shot at the gospel, with a clear view of truth. And it's we engage our hostile world, we understand that there is a prescribed way. He says in 16, do it all with a good conscience. Now, a conscience is a divinely placed internal mechanism 
that either accuses or excuses us. It is a means of conviction or affirmation. There are people with a debased conscience that permits them to engage in all types of sin without any prod or guilt. You sometimes wonder, how can a person do that? Well, their conscience, and Scripture says, is seared. It's not a good conscience. It's a debased conscience. In other words, our conscience is not always the guide. It's the adjective that describes our conscience that will tell us whether our conscience is going to do any good at all. A believer's conscience is to be good. It is to be, and the word good, godly. A conscience whose standard is Christ and is submitted to the all of God's word. So in other words, our conscience is to be framed by God's truth. Because even though the world may still think evil of us, and actually what it says, say evil about us, even though they threaten or accuse us, ultimately there's a shame when they see our godly behavior, godly lives again seen as the foundation for a gospel defense. Why live for him? Why speak as he desires and acts as he commands? Well, do it because the gospel is proclaimed through your speech and behavior, which is a point Peter was making before when you respond to your government and to your employer and to your family and to your church and to the world around you, your godly life proclaims Christ. He goes into giving a defense to the gospel. And what does he say? Make sure your godly life proclaims the gospel. Why would I want to live this way? What is the purpose? Because God will use that to preach his truth. Though this world may attack, may lie, may hurt, may attempt to destroy, we can know with certainty that our testimony and gospel answer to them will be used by our Lord and Savior for good. Romans 8.28 says this, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Oftentimes we grab that verse, and rightfully so, when we're in the throes of suffering, when we're in the midst of the unknown, when we can't grasp what's going on. But I want you to understand that verse is also applicable when you're ready to give a defense. And you wonder, how in the world is this going to make a difference? Have you ever talked to someone where you share truth that it makes perfect logical sense and they just blatantly ignore it all and blindly go off into their lie? Or belligerently, that's what I usually encounter, a belligerent continuation and you walk away and you say, how in the world can this be used for good? What did this accomplish? Romans 8, 28 says, we know God works things for good. Who's good? His good, his purpose to expand his kingdom. And there's a, a comfort in knowing that we do what he's called us to do, but we're not consumed with the immediate response or results because that's in his hands. Peter makes abundantly clear to us that being ready involves more than a quick mind or a memorized response. I'm not saying having a quick mind is a bad thing. I'm not saying having some things memorized is a bad thing, but it's a whole heap more than that. It takes all of you living your life for his priority and ready and willing to answer charges against Christ, to respond to the questions about his hope. But I put here, but are we? Is that actually what our life looks like and accomplishes? Because it's important to ask yourselves an honest question about our interactions with people. I put down here, are we defending Christ and Christianity or just explaining it away? When your friends ask you about your life, 
Do you find yourself explaining it away, or do you find that your answer defends the faith? And I look through, again, you go kind of back through the annals of your memory, some maybe better than others, but so many times I find myself explaining, well, you know, I'm a Christian, so I da 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 Like it's some kind of bad thing, like, oh, I'm sorry for that. Sorry I'm such a buzzkill. I'm sorry I'm, I'm this way. Instead of it being a focus on Christ and truth, and I realize that links directly to who was top priority of my life. Because when I'm explaining away Christianity, I'm trying to make my life easier in the world around me and still keep God okay with me. It's a very manipulative response. But when I engage in that moment, not in an obnoxious way, to defend him and to promote him, well, that tells me where my priorities are. We live in a hostile world. We may be privileged to live here uh, where pressure is less intense, but we have no guarantee it would always be that way. And we know that our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world face that increase now. Yet Christ has called us to engage with the world, to be his ambassadors, to be ready to give an answer for the hope in us. And it's an answer that involves all of us. As we've seen clearly from Peter, the door of readiness swings on the hinges of being good, being willing, and being committed. So the question we need to ask ourselves in light of all those verses around defending the faith is this, are we truly ready? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity we have to come and study your word. I hope that we're all convicted, that we take time to look back uh, through life, uh, to confront again our, our, our own way of living, that as we examine our lives and, and, and say we want to be ready to give a defense for your faith, it's more than an intellectual knowledge. We need to know about gospel truth. We need to understand it. But when we give a defense, we give a defense for the hope that's resting in us. We won't do that unless our heart's top priority is you. We won't have the foundation to do that if we're not living godly lives. If our attitude and disposition is not ready and willing to suffer for the cross, if that's something you call us to, to be committed and then prepared to answer, not from our personality or our wit or our wisdom, but instead answer with gospel truth, that we center on the gospel, that our answer focuses on what you've accomplished in this world, to let them know that the hope that's in us is a hope of redemption. We know the truth that you came to the earth to die on the cross for our sins, to redeem a people for you. We need to share that truth boldly with them. It connects to every life circumstance, everything we face. And when we can't see it, we recognize that we've probably shifted priorities. So I ask that as we walk through uh, this week and beyond, that our hearts and minds will be convicted constantly, not to have guilt and remorse over the past, but instead let those memories prod us to place you first on the throne and then be ready for the opportunities to come to speak gospel truth in the world around us. In your precious and holy name, amen.